It's graduation season. So if you have a new graduate in your life, here's a fantastic graduation present that you can enter for a chance to win. QuickAndDirtyTips.com is running a sweepstakes offering an amazing bundle of books for free, like the essay collection Freshman Year of Life, Jamie Oliver's Cookbook, Five Ingredients, and When to Jump by Mike Lewis. Just think of it as a starter pack for life after college. Just visit bit.ly slash QDT life after college to enter for your chance to win. Good luck. Welcome to Case Closed. I'm your true crime guide, Charlie Spicer. Last time, we took an in-depth look at Hemi and Andrea's travels. We also heard some of the conversations they had with people in their lives. There was the dramatic email from Hemi that declared that he was leaving his wife, Ariella. From what we know at this point, Hemi has romantic feelings for Andrea. Andrea, on the other hand, seems conflicted and confused. So we pick up as they head out on a second trip to Greenville. It's October 21st, 2010. Melanie White, Hemi's real estate agent turned confidant, will later recall that Hemi was really excited. They were staying at the Hampton Inn. At some point, their hotel reservation was adjusted so they would have adjoining rooms. Who made this adjustment is unknown. The two check into the hotel and then, curiously, head down the street. They go to a nightclub and lounge called Pulse. It's 8.30 p.m. and the place is empty. October is well past the busy season. A DJ plays music, and a bartender named Christine Oliveira takes note of Andrea and Hemi. Her memory from that night was clear. I recall the music was playing, she said later in court. Mr. Newman seemed very happy to be there. They ordered their drinks. He had a discussion with me about how happy he was and how nice the bar was. Andrea gave off a different vibe. She seemed a little upset and went to the bathroom a couple of times, Oliveira recalled. It was during one of these trips to the ladies' room that Oliveira asked Hemi if everything was okay with his lady friend and if they needed anything. Hemi said that Andrea was dealing with a real jerk at home. That's why, Hemi said, she needed to be someplace like Pulse to get away from her troubles. Over the next hour, Andrea seemed to perk up and Hemi's mood soared. The two of them went on the dance floor, with Andrea spinning to salsa music. Andrea seemed to be dancing specifically for Hemi, giving him a little show, Oliveira said. At one point, he pulled her toward him and they began groping each other, she recalled. They kissed about three times, quick lip-to-lip kisses, pop kissing, she called it, not like making out. It happened while they were dancing. After about an hour, they started to leave. They left very happy, the bartender said, their arms around each other. Over the course of the evening, Hemi and Andrea had a drink or two each, but didn't seem drunk. They were fine. They left the bar fine, Oliveira said. Hemi's demeanor suggested he was thinking, wow, I got her. Said Oliveira, he was very excited to be with her. Things are clearly heating up between the two. Hemi calls Melanie White with an update during the trip. He told her that he and Andrea had walked by a lake, had a drink, a nice dinner, and went upstairs to the hotel, ending up in the same room, where Hemi said she gave in. Afterward, though, 
Andrea was very distraught, said White. From what Hemi told me, she was very upset with herself, and she wanted to sever personal ties with Hemi and just keep it business. Hemi had a different reaction. According to White, he could not leave that alone. After this, for the four weeks leading up to Rusty's murder, detectives found no more messages of evidentiary value between Andrea and Hemi, but they remained in touch, both at the office and by phone. Chad Fitzgerald, an FBI analyst, examined the phone records with specific attention to calls Hemi and Andrea made at critical junctures of the case. Much of what he uncovered, detectives could already have surmised. On July 1st, 2010, for instance, Hemi and Andrea's phones both connected with a cell phone tower at the airport in Norfolk, Virginia, while they both traveled there. Later in July, phone records placed both of their phones at the Denver airport. They were calling each other, suggesting that he and Andrea traveled from the airport to Longmont together, and their phones pinged the same cell phone towers in Greenville, South Carolina, when they traveled there in late August. Other calls, however, raised questions. On October 15th, shortly after Hemi split with his wife and moved out, he placed 12 calls and texts that pinged a tower in Marietta near a business on Austell Road called Wild West Gun Traders. Among these was a 16-minute call at 1.45 p.m. to Andrea's phone. A little over two weeks later, the same day that Hemi was in Dalton for the gun show on October 31st, he sent a text to Andrea's phone at 11.34 a.m. The contents of the message were lost. All that could be determined was that the text was relayed by the same tower used by the convention center hosting the gun show. Less than two hours later, he called Parnell's Firearms and Range, where he arrived the next day with a gun and ammunition. On another day, Hemi called two costume shops. In between, he called Andrea. Finally, the FBI analyst checked Andrea and Hemi's calls for November 18, 2010. Less than half an hour after Rusty's murder at 9 a.m., Hemi made a flurry of calls. Timed between 9.27 a.m. and 10.50 a.m., the 15 calls pinged a tower far away from GE Energy. Of these, nine were to Andrea's phone. All of them went unanswered, or apparently went to voicemail, until 10.30 a.m., when a call between Hemi's phone and Andrea's lasted 42 seconds. It was at about this same time that Andrea also spoke to Rusty's father, Donald Snyderman, and texted her co-worker, Alan Shaktily, telling them that Rusty had been shot. Reviewing her statements to police, she claimed that at that time, nobody had told her what happened to Rusty. Had Hemi told her what he had done? Or had Andrea known all along? The details we just heard about the phone calls are so fascinating. And it's worth noting that after the murder, no more calls or emails between the two caught the attention of police. During so many of these key junctures, Hemi and Andrea were in contact. These calls can tell us one of two things. Either Hemi called Andrea at these junctures because of guilt or nerves, or Hemi and Andrea were in on the murder together. We don't have a solid answer yet, but keep these moments in mind as we move forward, these moments where things don't seem to add up. We're going to jump now to some accounts of Hemi's behavior after the murder. He's acting as you'd expect someone would after their co-worker's husband was shot. He seems normal. 
Those who saw Hemi at the funeral and Shiva said, even in hindsight, after his arrest, that they saw nothing unexpected. Al Harris, the audit program manager at GE who had been hired by Hemi, would later describe his boss at the Shiva as remorseful, sorrowful, concerned about Andrea and everybody else. Orna Hannison saw Hemi Newman the week of Thanksgiving, about three or four days after the murder. Hannison had been transferred from Houston back to the Marietta office with a different job title, and Hemi popped by her new office. He gave her a hug, welcomed her back, and said it was great to see her again. Hannison would describe his demeanor as upbeat and normal. And just days before his arrest, when Hemi had already been contacted by Sergeant Cordolino about the rental car, he showed no signs of stress. As for Andrea, she stayed away from work and mostly away from Hemi after the murder. In late December, she traveled to Florida with her parents to go to the synagogue where she was married for what would have been her 10th wedding anniversary. It was then that Hemi sent her the iTunes love song from Bruno Mars. Then Andrea and her friend Shana Citron discussed the police sketch of the killer that had at the time been recently released. According to Citron, Andrea said the longer she looked at the drawing, the more she recognized the eyes. They looked like Hemi's. It was an observation Andrea didn't share with police. We're going to shift gears here for a moment. As we've been focusing on Hemi's suspicious actions, focus on Andrea has likewise been heating up. The media have their eyes trained on her. A series of leaks in relation to this case set off a media firestorm. The first leak was of a search warrant affidavit. It outlined the level of communication between Andrea and Hemi before and after the murder. There was another leak that revealed Hemi and Rusty had had lunch together to discuss business. The most damning of the leaks was related to the email Hemi sent Andrea. The subject? Raising good kids can be easy. He ends the email, Good night, mon ami, and thanks for the inspiration. Hemi's obsession with Andrea's parenting and his obsession with her kids will be important later. Her lawyer, a man by the name of Seth Kirschenbaum, gives a statement in her name, stressing that these leaks don't indicate Andrea was involved in the murder. They are suspicious, but not proof of guilt. Is she a woman grieving or a woman guilty? Another woman is involved in this case, however tangentially. That woman is Hemi's wife, Ariella. We go to her now. On March 7th, Hemi's wife had had enough. Just days after the first news reports about the search warrant affidavit, Ariella filed for legal separation. The filing claimed cruel treatment and sought alimony and child support for the youngest of their three children, a 17-year-old daughter. It also alleged adultery. We believe there was an extramarital relationship between Hemi Newman and Andrea Snyderman, said her attorney, Esther Panich. As the separation battle heated up and the prosecution's murder investigation fell into place, Hemi made his second court appearance. Guards escorted him into the courtroom on April 4th to formally enter a plea to the charges in the indictment. Hemi had not been seen since his initial court appearance the day after his arrest. Wearing a dark suit instead of the jail uniform, he appeared thinner and grayer than four months earlier. He smiled at his attorney, Doug Peters, who was wearing his traditional bow tie. 
We enter our plea of not guilty to those charges, Peters said. Hemi's wife and children were not there, nor were any friends or co-workers. As always, Andrea didn't attend. After the hearing, Esther Panich continued to pound at Hemi. In remarks to reporters, she portrayed him as a deadbeat dad and non-supportive estranged husband, while his wife suffered financially and emotionally as she struggled to keep the family together. Imagine having the police come to the door and say your spouse is accused of murder when they've never had a history of any criminal activity. It's devastating, Panich said. Hemi, she said, had not even seen his children since his arrest. Two months later, in May, lawyers for Hemi and Ariella appeared in a different court. What normally would be a routine meeting in the divorce action turned contentious as Panich accused Hemi of tying up tens of thousands of dollars from his retirement accounts. When Panich sought a subpoena of the entire investigative file, Andrea's attorney, Seth Kirschenbaum, stood up to object. No one on this earth wants Newman convicted more than my client, he said. He accused Ariella and Panich of being motivated by vindictiveness and blasted Ariella's ongoing efforts to depose Andrea. Kirschenbaum accused Ariella and her attorney of tactics designed to embarrass and humiliate Andrea. This prompted Panich to suggest that Hemi's lawyers were joining forces with Andrea's to stymie the divorce proceeding and to save Andrea's hide. Fulton County Superior Court Judge Margaret Dorsey had finally heard enough. Saying that she, too, was a little bit concerned about what impact Ariella's requests would have on the murder trial, the judge put Andrea's deposition on hold. The case file would remain only for the eyes of the DA and Hemi's lawyers. The rhetoric proved to be the last gasps for all sides. Days later, Lawyers reached a deal in which Ariella would have access to the family's financial records and what was left of their dwindling assets. Hemi's lawyer griped that Ariella merely accepted the same offer we made several months ago, but Ariella was satisfied. The deal also gave Ariella leverage against Hemi if he didn't deliver. By not formally filing for divorce, only separation, she remained his legal wife, leaving the decision in her hands whether or not to testify against her husband, Atlanta law saying that a wife could not be compelled to do so. Said Panich, it's a question of when it's best for her. After a quick break, we'll hear how drama with the press also impacted the trial. Support for today's show comes from HelloFresh. HelloFresh delivers deliciously simple recipes and fresh, pre-measured ingredients right to your door. All meals come together in 30 minutes max. And you'll never need more than two pots and pans, so cleanup is easier than ever. And with three plans to choose from, including classic, veggie, and family, there's something for everyone. Get out of that recipe rut and start cooking outside of your comfort zone. I've been really impressed with HelloFresh. You wouldn't believe how easy it was to make last night's cherry balsamic pork chops. It was so much more delicious than what I could have made without the recipe, and faster and simpler, too. For $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, 
Go to HelloFresh.com slash CaseClosed80 and enter the code CaseClosed80. That's HelloFresh.com slash CaseClosed80 and enter the code CaseClosed80 for $20 off your first four boxes. This episode is supported by the riveting podcast, Unknown History. On June 6, 1944, troops from around the world collided on the longest day in military history. Today, we call that day D-Day. And in the 75 years since the epic battle, the full human story has never been told until now. On the podcast, Unknown History, best-selling author Giles Milton gives a voice to more than just the famous generals. You'll hear stories from survivors on all sides of the conflict. A teenage Allied conscript who stared death in the face. The daughter of the French butcher. The wife of the panzer commander. And a child who hid in the German bunkers. By the end of the podcast, you'll understand why Giles Milton's books have sold more than two million copies worldwide. Hear about the longest day like it's never been told before. Find Unknown History wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Unknown History. If the drama of the marriage dispute wasn't enough, there's even more drama happening in the press. This time, though, Hemi's defense is leading the narrative. The team essentially called members of the press to testify at the pretrial. Among those called was Dick Williams from the Dunwoody Crier, who you'll remember was one of the first reporters on the scene. The Crier offices are across the street from Dunwoody Prep, and Dick Williams has made sure their paper has supplied a consistent flow of coverage. We're going to go back to the story, starting with what the defense and the Dunwoody Crier have in common. Hemi's lawyers were seeking to show that the vast publicity in the case had prejudiced Hemi's chances for a fair trial and that the judge needed to impose a gag order and continue sealing documents. Although many court papers had been filed under seal, the case had been an information sieve to the detriment of Hemi. Only Hemi's statements during his questioning had remained under wraps, and his lawyers wanted to make sure that they stayed that way. The Atlanta media, including the lawyers for Cox Media, which owns the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, objected. They wanted the judge to unseal previously sealed court papers, including pretrial motions, which often are made public. Williams was called to show how saturated the region had become with news about the Snyderman killing. So many lawyers showed up to represent the Cox media outlets that District Attorney Robert James gave up his counsel table to them and quietly sat in the back of the courtroom. The judge put off a decision, keeping the investigative documents sealed for now. It was, for Hemi's team, a small victory, and one they'd have little time to savor, for more trouble was coming Hemi's way. Clearly, the defense sees the press playing a key role in persuading the jury towards their point of view. This is significant as we shift into the next phase of this case, the hearings and the trials. The first hearing started on August 15th, two months before the murder trial. This hearing wasn't to judge Hemi's guilt or innocence. 
Instead, it concerned whether or not the most damning evidence against Hemi should be admissible in court. Hemi's lawyers sought to throw out almost everything police had collected under a search warrant from Hemi's house and office, including his computer, as well as records for his cell phone and email accounts. The searches, the defense claimed, produced evidence tainted by defective warrants, issued based upon affidavits that failed to establish probable cause or that provided stale information. Hemi's lawyers also wanted Judge Gregory Adams to bar most of what Hemi said during his police interview on the grounds that he was not properly informed of his rights. And the defense wanted to control the verbiage at trial, seeking to bar the DA from saying things like murder and malice murder and possession of a firearm during the commission of a crime. The hearing put the Dunwoody Police Department under the microscope. Called to testify, Detective Andrew Thompson acknowledged that the Snyderman killing was his first murder case and had to answer for what some had argued was deferential treatment of Andrea. Thompson revealed publicly for the first time that he didn't talk to her until the day after the shooting and that she did mention that Hemi was her supervisor at that point and that he did make an advancement toward her, he said. Addressing why the department didn't go after Hemi sooner, Thompson said Andrea seriously minimized the encounter and said that was a one-time incident, nothing ever came of that. Therefore, he said, that information about Hemi was not shared. We were being driven toward other avenues of the investigation by the family, by Andrea's parents, by Andrea herself. Sergeant Gary Cordellino also testified, telling the judge that investigators had yet to compare notes before talking to Hemi, and that only later did they obtain the search warrants for phone records and texts and emails between Hemi and Andrea. So when you decided to arrest Mr. Newman, you had the same information essentially as you had when you began this videotaped interview? asked defense attorney Bob Rubin. Right, said Cordellino. That made Hemi's interrogation and all the information gleaned from it the basis for most of what evidence later was collected. The defense attacked the tactics of Cordellino and Barnes, suggesting they ran roughshod over Hemi's constitutional rights. Cordellino said that Hemi only waived his Miranda rights about an hour into the interview. Of course, the detectives had more than an inkling. They had Hemi's name on a rental form for the van most likely used in the murder, and they knew that Hemi was Andrea's boss. In his questions to the detective, D.A. Robert James ticked off the many things that went right in the interview, noting that Hemi never was in custody, legally speaking, before he was Mirandized. He also said that Hemi voluntarily rode with detectives to the police station. He was not arrested or handcuffed. Nor was he ever denied the chance when he got to the interview room to call a lawyer or even get up and leave, even though he had a good excuse to because of the doctor's appointment. After a week and a half break, the suppression hearing resumed on August 24th. The focus now was on the search of Hemi's house the day he was arrested. For this, the DA had a star witness. Ariella Newman had shoulder-length blonde hair with bangs and glasses and wore a white blouse with a necklace. She took the stand and gave her name for the record. Asked what her relationship was to the defendant, she answered, I am his wife. The first time the public saw Hemi's estranged wife made for a dramatic day in court. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution observed Newman seemed taken aback by the presence of his wife of 22 years. 
Answering questions from Chief Assistant District Attorney Don Geary, Ariella said that at the time of his arrest, Hemi had not been living with her for months, but had access to the house. He came back and forth, she said. He had the keys, he had the garage door opener to come into the house, and he was there, definitely. When police initially arrived, they told her that her husband had been arrested. It was the first time she'd heard about that and that they wanted to search the house. I gave them permission to take everything they want, she testified. Police stood by, awaiting a warrant. Only when it arrived, she said, did the officers take the home computer and two storage drives, even though her husband was no longer living there. Her testimony was a blow to Hemi. His attorneys had claimed she was coerced by police into the search. She chose to help because she's always cooperated with law enforcement, said her attorney Esther Panich. On September 8th, Judge Adams issued a written ruling. The defendant voluntarily accompanied officers to the Dunwoody Police Department, the judge wrote. The defendant spoke to and gave a video-recorded statement to officers of the Dunwoody Police Department. During the defendant's statement, there was no coercive police or government activity, and during defendant's statement, there were no improper threats or promises. The tactics by Cordellino and Barnes passed legal muster, the judge found. Signing the rights waiver, even so far into the interview, meant just what it said it would. Everything Hemi said could be used against him. The judge refused to dismiss the search warrants and refused to toss out Hemi's statements to police before and after his Miranda warning. The DA scored a slam-dunk victory. All of the evidence amassed against Hemi Newman could be used at trial. What's more, as part of the ruling, the search warrants were released to the media, laying it all out for every potential juror to see. The van rental, the purchase of a Bursa handgun for $375, the same day Hemi withdrew $400 from an ATM, the gun seller picking Hemi out of a lineup, the iPhone and iPad records, and more allegations about Hemi's relationship with Andrea. Soon, more revelations would reach the media including details of the email Hemi had sent to Andrea with the Bruno Mars gift song after the murder. Then, another search warrant affidavit stated in the strongest terms yet the official theory for why Rusty was murdered. Law enforcement has cause to believe that an extramarital affair between the defendant and Andrea Snyderman in large part provided motive to murder Russell Snyderman. Suffering a major pretrial defeat and the daily drumbeat of negative publicity, Hemi's lawyers caucused. With a mountain of evidence against their client, a traditional reasonable doubt defense was an option, but they had another choice, one born out of developments behind the scenes that the public and prosecutors didn't yet know about that opened the door for a bold legal gambit. It was a legal strategy that has frequently failed and now promised to subject Hemi to nationwide ridicule, but it appeared to be his last best hope. On September 10, 2011, Hemi Newman's lawyers, Doug Peters and Robert Rubin, held a news conference. It was held on the porch of their offices. Peters told reporters, Mr. Newman had a mental illness because of that mental illness, at the time of the shooting, he was just unable to understand the difference between right and wrong. Hemi planned to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. This is our notice to the court that what this trial is about is not what happened, 
but why it happened, Peters said. This case is not about whether or not he pulled the trigger. He is the one who did the shooting. What was his mental capacity at the time? Hemi's lawyers didn't reveal what they believed Hemi's mental illness to be. He was currently being evaluated by the best, and they feel very, very confident in their diagnosis in the case, which, of course, will be revealed, said Peters. DA Robert James seemed as surprised as anyone. Nothing in the investigation to this point had turned up a trace of mental illness. On the contrary, the witnesses all used words like calm and methodical and organized to describe Hemi. His restraint under pressure during the interrogation was such that he never raised his voice, never broke down, never grew angry, leaving the detectives frustrated. After the murder, he acted as he always had. There were occasional times he broke his reserve. The breakup email with his wife was the most dramatic example. Otherwise, friends and co-workers described him, if anything, as boring. The same held true after his arrest. When Hemi was processed into the DeKalb County Jail, just another of the thousands of inmates who go through each year, he underwent a routine psychiatric evaluation. Dr. William Jerome Brickhouse, the jail's director of mental health, said Hemi also got a follow-up examination based on some of the findings of the screening the next day, on January 6, 2011. Hemi had said that two weeks earlier he had contemplated suicide by drowning himself in the ocean while he was visiting Florida, but that he didn't go through with it because of his love for his children and his Jewish beliefs that it would be a sin. Brickhouse determined that Hemi was safe for regular incarceration, that he was not suicidal or homicidal, not a risk to himself or others, and found no signs of a serious mental disorder. The prosecution went to the judge, seeking information, documents, and recordings relevant to defendants' claim of insanity. I love this twist in the case. I love what a shock this revelation is and how outrageous it seems. Hemi? Insane? Methodical, rational Hemi? This man is insane? When I first got to this point in the story, I felt sure that this was a shot in the dark from the defense, a last-grab attempt to exonerate a guilty man. But then I kept going in the story, and I won't say if my feelings changed or not. You'll just have to listen next time on Case Closed. Case Closed is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. This season is based on the book Crazy for You by Michael Fleeman. Get the book or the audiobook using the link in our show notes. The show is produced by Becky Celestina with help from Sarah Grill and Alyssa Martino. We also want to thank Michael Fleeman. Can't wait to hear what really happened to Rusty Snyderman? Hear all of this season right now on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash case closed and use code closed to start your free trial. I'm Charlie Spicer. Thanks so much for listening.
Hey guys, it's Melissa and Mandy with the Moms and Murder podcast. We're a true crime podcast that's sure to make you laugh without compromising the seriousness of the content. Despite our name, we aren't just for the moms. Our show is for all the Diet Coke drinking, chicken loving, dateline watching people in your life. Come for the murder and stay for the witty humor and pop culture references. And you never know, you may even hear from some of your favorite names in the world of true crime, like Dateline's Josh Mankiewicz. Do you have a preference on what we call you, Josh Mankiewicz, Manx, Sir Manx a lot? Uh, I don't hear Sir, Sir Manx a lot quite as often as I. <laughs> I can make it happen for <laughs> you. Broken Homicide's Derek Lavasser. Are you tearing up on me? I saw you. <laughs> so beautiful, everything you're saying. <laughs> or even America's sweetheart, Ali Sweeney. The neighbors suggested that perhaps Kathleen had been attacked by. An owl. The owl theory um, that Melissa and Allie Sweeney believe. Again, so judgy. Check out Moms and Murder anywhere podcasts are found.